The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the HealthEd app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. Hello and welcome to HealthEd's Going Viral. I'm Dr. David Lim. It is Thursday, the 27th of October. In this COVID update, Professor Christine McCartney will update us on important issues such as the bivalent vaccines. There are new variants alert for the BA 2.75 and BA 4.6, herd immunity predictions and implications, and updates on jabs for children. Hello everyone, my name is Christine McCartney. I'm the Director of the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance and it's my pleasure to give you this update on COVID-19 and vaccines. Almost three years now into the pandemic. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land uh, that I'm on at the present time and also particularly acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening to this today. Um, and I think uh, pay my respects to them and uh, the gr great connection with that they have with the land and the seas. I'd also like to acknowledge some staff who've assisted with many of the slides uh, today that I'm going to present tonight that you're going to see. So um, let's talk about COVID-19 epidemiology. Where are we now? About hybrid immunity and how vaccines have been performing. Then we'll recap some of the new vaccine recommendations and look a little bit at the pipeline, and I'm going to touch briefly on the pandemic impact on other vaccine-preventable diseases. So, where are we now? Well, we're in a relatively quieter period. Um, you can see on the top left-hand bar here, the world has experienced a tremendous um, number of epidemic peaks, and at the moment, case numbers and deaths reported are lower than they have been for some period. Of course, um, you know, we've had variants sweep through the world and uh, many people now vaccinated and or infected. So over 621 million confirmed cases and 6.5 million deaths. But we know these reported numbers are underestimates and we have to take that with a real grain of salt or pinch of salt because we, we do understand that um, true death estimates um, are much greater. The death toll was estimated at 7.2 million in May of 2022. The, the Economist estimated deaths at 19.4 million in as early as February 2022. So these, uh, you know, estimates are very hard to be certain of, but you can see in the panel from a recent Lancet Commission on the right-hand side um, that they really did differ by region. In our Western Pacific region here, um, second from the right, We've fared reasonably well, I think, because many countries closed down and waited to, um, you know, reopen, um, suppress the virus in, in parts of this region um, until vaccination rates were high. But a tremendous um, toll from the pandemic. This is another graphic from the Lancet Royal Commission paper, uh, Commission paper, and they've shown these countries in the Southeast Asian region. Um, in the Western Pacific region, including Australia. And you can see here the blue case numbers in Australia, these large peaks. But in fact, if you look at the solid blue line, 
although every death is tragic, um, we have been able to keep the mortality rate from COVID-19 reasonably low because of the high vaccination rates that were achieved before widespread uh, transmission of the virus in this country. And other countries like Singapore have fared, have fared similarly. So here's uh, the latest epidemiological report from Australia. And again, you can see throughout 20, late 2021 and then during 2022, uh, these different peaks. We've got now green and blue for um, PCR and rat testing respectively. And you can see if you go across to the top right-hand graph, um, the reported case rates by age Really, um, you know, this virus is infecting people of all ages. We have very high infection rates and you'll see soon some new data come out on serological surveys, uh, a third round in both in adults and then new data in children um, showing very high infection rates across the whole of the population. But remember, infection is not to be unexpected because it's a virus and it lives through just travelling through and infecting humans. Infection per se is not what we are trying to prevent and we know it will occur. What we're trying to prevent largely is severe disease, getting sick and getting badly sick when you're infected. So you can see on the bottom left-hand corner is the variation in deaths and ICU admissions. And we still do the see ICU admissions and we still are seeing deaths. But the important thing here is um, you know, that we can keep these as low as absolutely possible. And, uh, you know, these have coincided, of course, with the different Omicron subvariants, BA1 first, followed by BA2 and then BA4, 5. And each time, you know, we have a sense of a new subvariant coming along, we're obviously adjusting vaccine recommendations and sometimes those public health and social measures as well to try to message around protecting the most vulnerable who are most likely uh, to suffer severe disease. So globally, BA5, the sub-variant of Omicron is still dominant. Um, there are BA4 uh, descendant lineages. So these sub-variants of the Omicron variant have had their own sub-variants, so to speak. Um, and we see now BA4 and BA2 sub-variants. But we also see what are called recombinant variants. So here's um, one that is somewhat troubling at the moment, XBB. This is a combination of a subvariant of BA2 and another subvariant of BA2 called BA2.75. And it's got additional mutations. It's been reported by 26 countries, and some of these mutations are quite concerning for immune escape. What we mean by immune escape is that there's the potential to not match well the antibody you know, pattern that has been derived in us by both infection and vaccination. So many of us now, because we have been affected, have hybrid immunity. Hybrid immunity, by definition, is immunity that is derived from both infection and you know, the series of vaccinations that you've had. So XBB is looking very antibody evasive. It's looking like it's got the potential to replicate more um, because of this, but it's not at this stage looking more severe. It has been transmitting in Singapore and did cause a blip of hospitalisations there. So we are keeping a very close eye on this um, variant in respect of any potential for you know, stronger messaging about public health social measures, 
and indeed whether our new booster recommendations need to be developed. Uh, there's also BQ1 and BQ1.1. These subvariants have emerged in the US and in Canada. And remember that we've got the Northern Hemisphere now entering winter, but people from Australia and this part of the world also travelling to the Northern Hemisphere. So this ability to sort of, you know, move variants around again um, remains something that we have to watch out for, even though we're going to be entering the summer here in Australia. But how are vaccines performing? Well, we know from over 361 studies in 44 countries, many of those studies on the vaccines that we're using, um, Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca as, a, as um, a primary dose, we know that vaccines are performing very well against severe disease and we continuously assess all of these studies and all of the immunologic data to form new recommendations. Here's a table uh, from a recent uh, WHO SAGE meeting and you can see they focused in here just on what does that second booster with a Pfizer dose look like against severe disease relative to receipt of the first dose of a booster vaccine? So how does the second booster compare above getting the first booster? Essentially, is it worth it? And yes, it is. So the answer there is that you're getting this additional protection. You know, look at each of those dots for each of those studies. It's somewhere in the order of 70 to 80, 90 percent um, boost in your protection, boost in the vaccine effectiveness, um, at least for a good period of time, um, albeit still a relatively short period of time, because every time we make these recommendations, you know, we're still monitoring uh, how they look. And, and that's a, a very important thing for those who are older um, or more at risk of severe COVID. And then similarly here from the US and Singapore, estimates that vary, whether that's a 60% boost um, in effectiveness or a 90% relative effectiveness, um, we still know this makes a difference to those who are, you know, are most at risk of COVID. The duration of protection of that second booster in terms of absolute vaccine effectiveness is shown here against either hospitalisation or death. Um, you know, on the right-hand side, in a study in Canada focusing on over 60-year-olds and those in long-term care facilities. So critically important that we see increased protection from the second booster and we see that protection being durable over time with the current epidemiology of the virus that we have. And this is why it's so important to be focusing on boosters for this population. This example from Singapore is very telling. Who is dying from the virus or who is being admitted to ICU? And it is the elderly, it is particularly those over um, 60, and you can see that it's particularly those who are not fully vaccinated according to current recommendations in that country, or were vaccinated but without a booster. They're the dark brown and the orange lines. So, you know, we are seeing, again, vaccines keep people out of hospital. I cannot stress that enough. And it speaks to the critical role that you all have um, in messaging this and talking about this with your patients. The other thing that boosters still do, um, and vaccines still do, is they decrease transmission. And it's a big sort of fallacy out there that vaccines don't impact on transmission. Transmission isn't zero. We are living with the virus. But it's worth all of us having our vaccine doses up to date because if we meet someone else, we're less infectious to them. And this has been nicely demonstrated from this study in California state prisons, 35 of them. They test 
their inmates very regularly. They had sustained Omicron transmission, so they knew who'd been infected in the past, who was being infected at the time. And they found that if their inmates had had um, any vaccination, they were 22% like, less likely to transmit to one of the other inmates. If they'd been infected in the past, they were also around 23% less likely to transmit to the other inmates. And if they'd been infected in the past and had vaccination, which of course we still recommend you to be vaccinated if you've been infected, to get that hybrid immunity, to train your immune system, well, that decreased the chance that they'd pass the virus on to someone by 40%. So this all adds up to reducing outbreaks and reducing, you know, um, you know, risk, or perhaps rare if they're young individuals to the individual and, and risk to the healthcare system. So all of this continues to be why we, you know, support why we recommend vaccines. Now, we, we have done very well in Australia with our um, you know, primary vaccination um, rates, 95.8% here for two doses in people over 16, 72% um, for three doses in people over 16. But if you flip that around, it still means that over a quarter of people, one in four people that we meet, won't have had that first booster. So they're not going to fare as well, or we're not going to fare as well if we're with them, um, you know, in terms of also meeting the virus, if they haven't had that booster. And then when we look at those for the fourth dose who are eligible, um, it's still a relatively small number because the fourth dose recommendations are for 50 and above and optional for 30 to 49. So only 4.9 million there. And you can actually see if you go to the bottom right hand of the table, that equates to 41.5% nationally who are eligible, not overall, but who are eligible for that for that second booster, the fourth dose, have taken it up. So six out of 10 people that haven't taken up that second booster. And that's where I know that you can make a real difference. Uh, in aged care for that fourth dose, uh, the numbers are a little bit better, but still one out of five roughly, still not having that additional dose. And, you know, if you look at that across the whole of the older population, you can see the breakdown here by age as of the 19th of October. Still around, you know, one out of five individuals not having had that second booster. Now, some of them may have been waiting for a bit of time because they've been infected with the virus. But from three months after you've been infected, you can have that booster again. You will boost three months later. We wait because you, you obviously have some protection from your infection, but we want to build on that protection, train the immune system even more. Okay, so we're continuing to experience transmission. That's not unexpected. We're going to be living with this virus for the rest of our lives. It's our development of immune protection that will turn it into a milder virus rather than a severe one. And we do know that uh, we have continue to have under-immunised older people and people with medical conditions who are at risk so it's key to offer the booster. All 50 years plus recommended to have the second booster, 30 to 49 optional, and you can risk assess them. Right now they might be going off to travel in the Northern Hemisphere. What a good idea to get that booster. Um, the two mRNA vaccines are preferred. Uh, the Novavax vaccine, a protein adjuvant vaccine is an alternative. And I think there's really not much AstraZeneca at all out there now. We are tracking these new subvariants, so keep an eye on that. And again, always counsel our patients to, you know, mask up and just be a little bit careful, particularly if they're in one of these risk groups. 
So there are new vaccines and there are new recommendations. And I know there's a lot to keep up with in this space, but I think uh, there's also many kind of quick and uh, good resources to be able to really catch what's out there and um, plenty to, you know, plenty to keep up with. So both um, mRNA vaccine companies have got across different parts of the world these new bivalent vaccines registered. Now in Australia, we've got the Spikevax Moderna vaccine now registered. And what it's been developed as is a vaccine that has 50-50 mix of the mRNA that codes for the spike protein of the original ancestral virus or the spike protein of the Omicron BA1 sub-variant. And with those two different types of spike protein that are then produced in the body after the mRNA is delivered, the immune response is broadened and boosted. Interestingly, in the US, in the Northern Hemisphere, they've gone ahead and registered already a BA45 containing bivalent vaccine for both Moderna and for Pfizer. And they've done this based on animal data only. The 4-5 vaccine hasn't been registered here in Australia. We've got the BA1 vaccine for Moderna registered and the mRNA um, Pfizer BA1 vaccine under evaluation at the moment. I think an outcome from the TGA on that is very soon coming and a target advice will be coming as well. So why the difference? People are asking why the difference? Why do they have five registered in the US and only one here? Firstly, Australia requires human data, not just animal data. And the key thing here is we are not trying to run and catch up with future variants. We don't have a crystal ball that says, you know, three, four, six months earlier, start to make a new vaccine that's going to pick what the variant will be in six or nine months' time. It doesn't work like that. But what we do know is that having a variant vaccine, and indeed having a booster, is giving your immune system extra training. It's like, it's like being in the gym doing something different and you know, having that extra session with your immune system that helps you be able to fight the virus better. There is um, not a large difference though in the type of protection that we anticipate between whether you get this new bivalent variant vaccine or the original ancestral vaccine. So Atagi have actually said the bivalent Moderna vaccine is an alternative for vaccine for people who want a booster, but it there's no differential recommendation between it and the current Moderna you know, ancestral booster or the current Pfizer ancestral booster, um, although both are preferred over Novavax. So the, the actual booster recommendations have not changed either. They haven't changed since the middle of winter. So it's not like we're saying have this as an additional dose. You can just use it as one of the tools in the toolbox if your patients are due for the boosters, which we talked about. And then, you know, importantly, this statement, that the Moderna bivalent vaccine showed only a small incremental benefit over the original vaccine for Omicron neutralisation. And it's not recommended for primary vaccination, but we have very few people that are, I think, willing to have that now who haven't already had primary vaccination. So here's the New England Journal um, study on this. Safety was really essentially the same, and it's the same for both bivalent vaccines, Moderna or Pfizer, as compared to the ancestral vaccines when used as a booster dose. And you can see in the top right-hand side, comparing the two blue bars to the two orange bars, 
that there's a little bit higher titer of antibody when you give the bivalent variant vaccine as compared to the original vaccine. But what does that higher titer, which has variously been reported out at about 1.5 to 1.7 times higher, what does that mean? Okay, so I said the, the titer of antibody is 1.5 times higher. That does not mean protection is 1.5 times higher, and I'll show you why. But in the meantime, I wanted to point out that there's a lot of great um, FAQs on our NCRS website um, that help explain this, and you can also point your patients to these, of course. Um, so, it, you know, talking about these new bivalent vaccines. So what I'm showing you here is a plot or a line, a bar, and it says 11 times. If you get any booster now, so this is, say, a second booster, you give it to your patient, they're going to get 11, an 11-fold 11 increase in antibody. They get that boost which translates to that higher protection that I showed you earlier. If you gave them a variant vaccine compared to the original vaccine, the difference is only about 1.5-fold difference. So on top of that 11, it's only a little smidge between the two. Boosting is the best thing. It's not a big deal whether it's the variant vaccine or the ancestral vaccine. And you can see that really nicely from these two diagrams and particularly from the graph in the bottom left-hand side. This is um, from David Curry, um, Deb Cromer and Miles Davenport's team at um, UNSW. And it's been hugely helpful. So they're modelling the impact of this antibody um, change from getting a booster. And you can see that if you had the blue line here, you're going up from where the grey is in the bottom right-hand side, you're boosting up to the blue line with the ancestral booster. But if you actually use the variant booster, you're only boosting up a little bit more from that blue line up to that red line. It's a smidge. Now, it might be a smidge that you want to invest in and you, you, know, you and your patient want to find that variant vaccine. But what I'm saying to you is if you don't have the variant vaccine in the fridge, just go ahead and use the original booster. Don't miss out on the opportunity to boost someone. So that 1.5 higher fold titer um, is modelled to only increase protection in the order of 0.8% up to 4.6% over um, a significant increase in protection that I showed you already, which is you know, in the 80, 80 or 90% range. If your patient hasn't had past infection, it might be that there's a little bit of additional um, you know, percentage point increase in protection for, for them if they use the variant vaccine up to 10% if they haven't had past infection. But, um, you know, again, I wouldn't miss the opportunity to boost them. So WHO have taken this information. They've summarised it to say if you've got symptomatic illness, just by boosting, um, for, I mean, not if you've got it, rather protection against symptomatic illness, just by boosting, you're going to go up from 50% protection up to 85.6% protection, right? You want to be in the 80s. But if you had a variant booster, you're only going to go up to 90.2%, only that 4.6 percentage rise. Against severe COVID, if you boost, you're going to go up to 98% protection, the place to be. However, if you um, had a variant booster, you're going to only go up to 98.8%, percentage points different. So the key thing here is to get the booster in. Okay, let's switch tact a little bit and talk about COVID-19 vaccines in children. We know that children uh, tend to usually have asymptomatic or mild COVID. Um, by, by definition, asymptomatic is not COVID, it's just SARS-CoV-2 infection. And we know that some children will be infected without their parents knowing it. Um, 
the rates of hospitalisation and deaths in children are considerably lower, but we, the, there are risk factors for severe disease, including immunodeficiency, complex or multiple health conditions, um, and disability with severe or complex um, health needs. And you can see that from many, many good studies that we've, we've accessed. There are also, on that last slide I showed you, the rare outcomes of COVID um, in children, which include the multi-inflammatory uh, syndrome, MISC-C, or PIMS-TS. And we have seen cases of this, that we report data on that every, every month. Um, but those cases are, are thankfully declining at the moment. Now, in children aged under five years, from six months to five years, there are now two vaccines available for use, Moderna and Pfizer. And for Moderna, it's a two-dose schedule. For Pfizer, um, registration has just occurred, but a target advice is yet to come out. Um, it won't be long. And that's a three-dose schedule. The two doses didn't quite get the immune response and protection, anticipated protection in children that were hoped for. And so Pfizer have got now a three-dose schedule for their under five vaccine, not two doses. And you can see that the content um, in terms of micrograms varies, the volume varies, the presentations varies. A key take home here, really, if you're vaccinating any younger person, even if you're vaccinating an older person, is really know what you know, type of dose you're working with, what the dose recommended for age is, check their age, check the volumes that you're drawing up. All of these steps in the process to immunise are critically important because of the different types of presentations, the different recommended dosing for, for by age group. And what we are seeing across the whole of the world, not just in Australia, are a reasonably high rate of vaccine errors reported. Do report an error if it occurs, because it's important that we know that, so that materials and training and you know, everyone's practice can improve. But um, you know, it, it's really, really important to prevent errors first and foremost. So these vaccines are available for young children. Um, this is data from the Moderna vaccine study and the antibody response generated from this schedule in children was comparable to the antibody levels that were seen in, um, in adolescents in, and young adults. That's the basis on which it was registered and that you know, includes against Omicron. But then there's also been some protection data come through and against any type of COVID, around 50% um, protection. Now remember, children don't get severe COVID as, as often and we're used to higher figures for protection, but that's against severe COVID and we're not seeing a lot of severe COVID. So against any COVID protection around 50%. Um, the adverse event profile was, uh, you know, quite reasonable, definitely in favour um, of the benefit of the vaccine over any risk from the vaccine, but systemic reactions were more frequent after the second dose and did um, include, um, you know, reasonably high rates of fever over 38 degrees. So 16% of children um, with fever over 38 degrees, 2.9% um, with grade three fever. So definitely something to be aware of um, and monitor for. And, you know, this uh, is a reason why it's recommended that these vaccines are not routinely given on the same day as other vaccines because we don't want to see um, fever perpetuated even more by, by giving uh, these vaccines on that same day. Now, I'll just highlight to you the Pfizer data, even though there's not a recommendation for this yet, but it has been registered. And again, um, slightly higher rates of um, systemic reactions after the vaccine and um, 
you know, not terribly dissimilar between dose two and dose three, at least in the clinical trial data, um, but some drowsiness, some decreased appetite. So these vaccines, um, you know, uh, do cause some expected, uh, albeit transient, reactions. And because we have less severe COVID likely in young children, and we, we also have a number of young children who've already been infected, um, the current recommendations are just for high-risk children for these vaccines in the age of six months to less than five years. On balance, this is the group that will gain the most protection and in whom the benefit risk profile for the vaccines is best. And currently those recommendations exist for the Moderna vaccine, but they will be, um, there will be recommendations coming out for the Pfizer vaccine soon. Um, I can't tell you what they are yet, we haven't seen them, but they, they will be published you know, um, fairly soon. Now, um, in five to 11 years, we recommend all children to be vaccinated. As you know, there's the two vaccines, 12 years and above now, the three vaccines, um, all to be um, vaccinated, but only a booster if you're high risk in 12 to 15, and the booster there is Pfizer. And then for 16 to 17 years, um, all three vaccines are possible. Um, there is a booster recommended, um, and the booster that's available for that age group is Pfizer at the moment. So again, very important that we absolutely know which vaccine to use in which age group, how many doses and what presentation. Uh, the US track safety data, we track safety data. Um, I'll just show it to you here, but for the sake of time, won't go into it. The um, under five data from the US, we've been keeping a very close eye on, is above comparing Moderna and Pfizer. And we're seeing also Pfizer um, come through uh, with good vaccine effectiveness in children aged 5 to 11. So you can reassure parents that, yes, this vaccine does protect against COVID. There's been various press about this. Oh, it doesn't protect, it does protect, you know, low protection. You see all these headlines. But if you look at this table, um, studies consistently showing around, you know, 50, 60% protection against COVID in these children, consistent with the clinical trial data, which is really important to know. So quick summary here um, for children. The recommended schedule for healthy children, two doses, um, eight weeks apart with immunocompromised, three doses. Uh, we don't recommend co-administration routinely um, in six months to five years, but for all other ages, above five years, you can co-administer COVID-19 vaccines with other vaccines. Um, you know, ensuring that we get people vaccinated is the most important thing. And you can just counsel people, there might be a slight chance of a slight increased risk of fever or, or um, you know, lethargy, but, uh, you know, or just feeling tired after the vaccine, but that will pass. And we're not concerned about that with co-administration in five years and above. If someone turns the age uh, that is, pops them into the next category when they're due for their second dose, um, give them the appropriate brand and dose for their age on that day of vaccination. If you've given them the other dose for the younger age, it's not a big deal, I wouldn't repeat it, but give them the age, uh, the vaccine that they're they would be eligible for at the age that they're due. There is a decision age, should I get COVID-19 vaccine for my child for five to 15 years on our website, and a decision aid for older people as well. Um, and you know, these can be a great resource to point your patients to if they've still got questions or you, know, you, you're, um, you don't have time to go through many of those questions with them in the clinic, really nice resource. Uh, so just very briefly to wrap up, another important point, the pandemic, has had a big impact on global immunisation rates, which put us at risk of seeing a resurgence of vaccine-preventable diseases that you've probably either never seen or hardly ever seen. 
So there has been this backsliding in immunisation rates globally. 25 million children in the world were un- or under-vaccinated in 2021 alone. And you think of that for every single year, how many children under-vaccinated. 18.2 million got no dose. This is 6 million more than in 2019. So we have seen the world, unfortunately, because we turned our hand to dealing with the pandemic and to delivering COVID-19 vaccines, we've seen the world go back more than a decade, more than a decade in our rates of immunisation. And this means that we will see and are seeing outbreaks of vaccine preventable diseases in parts of the world that we might go to or that we might have friends, family or visitors from. Now, our declines in Australia have only been by about one to two percentage points. You've done incredibly well, but we do have areas where there is less timely coverage, where there's delays in getting that dose, even though you might get it six, 12 months later. That opens up pockets of vulnerability and there are communities where coverage is much lower. So if I can urge you to know your own data, to work with your primary healthcare network and other resources that you've got, to target strategies in your area, uh, to catch up kids, to catch up families, um, to ensure that we're not going to see a foothold gain from some of these um, pathogens when they come into our country. The 10 countries that account for the most number of zero-dose children are our friends and close neighbours. So India, the Philippines, Indonesia. We've got friends and family who visit here all the time. And this is not finger pointing. This is about saying that we want to ensure that our travellers, um, our new families, everyone is protected. There's been measles uh, outbreaks, large and disruptive ones, and these will continue to blossom out uh, across the country. There's been outbreaks of vaccine-derived polioviruses. So this is in countries where you've had a very low coverage of uh, OPV and there have been vaccine-derived polioviruses that then circulate in the non-immune community and, you know, this is called outbreaks of polio. The key thing we can do is make sure that we have timely vaccination or catch-up vaccination for polio. Same for diphtheria on, on the rise in parts of the world. So in summary, thank you very much. I know that the summer's coming up and, uh, you know, it feels like we're going to have a respite. I think we will to some extent, but it's critically important that to ensure that um, we really have our immunisation system serving us well. I very much encourage you to redouble your efforts to offer COVID-19 booster doses, especially to under-vaccinated, um, older and at-risk adults. Um, risk assess others for the booster dose. Um, remember that you can use either the bivalent or the ancestral original um, mRNA vaccines or, um, you know, Novavax, the protein vaccine, as an alternate for a booster. Um, we really uh, want to continue to have booster doses up to date in younger adults too, if, if it's a first booster. You know, if your 25-year-old um, got COVID back in February, it's a good idea to have them boosted now if they never got that booster. And then um, look out for any advice around new variants, um, but that will certainly come if it needs to. Vaccines are available for six months to five-year-olds, but only for those at risk, and you saw the risk categories. Um, so I'd have that discussion with your families. And let's keep vaccinating because uh, we really don't want to be um, seeing the re-emergence of vaccine-preventable disease. Let's think about every opportunity to vaccinate 
Um, anytime you see a family, see if you can slip in that conversation um, before travel for new arrivals uh, and keep doing the great job that you've been doing throughout, uh, throughout these past three years. Thanks for the opportunity to talk with you tonight. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.